0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. One of the casualties of the COVID-19 pandemic is the sacraments. Catholic patients in hospitals and residents in assisted care facilities have been routinely denied access to the sacraments due to lockdowns imposed to try to curb coronavirus. Unfortunately, many patients have died without the benefit of reconciliation, confession, anointing of the sick, and the Eucharist, including viaticum. One of these patients denied access is our own NCBC president, Joseph Meany. He wrote about the situation in the essay, Shocking Violations of Religious Liberty Rights, which is available on the NCBC website. Dr. Meany joins us today to talk about his experiences and to discuss what we can do to assure that the sacraments are available to patients when they need them the most. Dr. Joseph Meany, welcome back to our podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you again. I believe this is your third time with us, so you're you're a pro and, and looking forward to a great interview. So, over the past few weeks a number of people have been sending me ma- sending me messages asking how you're feeling. So first and foremost, how are you feeling?
1: Not bad at all. In fact, surprisingly well. It's um it's interesting that um you know, you can come very close to death and at the same time have very few, you know, long-term consequences. I'm um I'm actually profoundly grateful that um you know, I'm, I'm really doing well.
0: And I can attest, I've been seeing you a number of times over the past few weeks and, and would not know that anything happened. So let's go back. Uh, can you tell us what happened on that faithful Sunday evening back in May?
1: Yeah. So my wife and daughter and I were watching the sound of music and, uh, After watching that, they wanted to watch the documentary about the making of The Sound of Music afterwards, which I
0: didn't really want to do. (laughs) So I'm holding my tongue too. I
1: just kind of uh, dropped off. And so we were in bed and and I was starting to fall asleep. And my wife looked over at a certain point. She thought that I was sounding a little bit strange and tried to nudge me back uh, into wakefulness. And then she realized that I was actually unconscious and something was up. So, you know, after trying to wake me up for a bit and not being successful, she called 911. And um, we had a a whole parade of people come into the house. The police actually uh, showed up first, which was interesting. And then I think after that, the fire department and after that, the ambulance actually showed. But- they were very, very good, and uh, it brought me back. They actually um, – I was suffering from VTAC, ventricular tachycardia, where your heart is, is misfiring and can lead to unconsciousness, and you know if it's prolonged enough, can lead to death. But uh, responded pretty well to defibrillation. My heart started beating normally again. But they were trying to figure out what had happened and what was going on, and they uh, took me to the hospital. I had another VTAC episode there. And so then they, you know, defibrillated me, but then they looked around, uh, in my arteries trying to figure out what was going on. And eventually it's kind of interesting because they, they were asking my wife if there was any, you know, family history, things like that. And, um, the idea of Brugada syndrome came up, which is a disease that was pretty much developed, well, discovered in the, in the 1990s, uh, genetic condition and the, um, the symptom of it generally is people die in their sleep. Um, so it's, uh, you know, they, they have this kind of arrhythmia, fatal arrhythmia. And, uh, if someone doesn't catch it and they don't you know defibrillate, you're in trouble. So the long and short of that was that they put in an implanted cardiac uh, defibrillator in my chest and tell me that I'm pretty much good to go. Um, that if I have these arrhythmias again, then I can Get a shock from my defibrillator and, and be fine, but otherwise, you know, I'm not supposed to play full contact sports. Uh, <laughs> I have to have a little um, little card to go through the the airport security, things like that. But but basically, I'm allowed to do any kind of exercise. I don't have a special diet. I'm on two really small medications that I'm supposed to take, and you know, have a new lease on life. So I'm I'm, I'm very grateful.
0: So, were you diagnosed with Brugada syndrome?
1: No. So, the, the problem with um, with Brugada, of course, is that it's a genetic disease. It's kind of difficult to to diagnose it unless you do a genetic test. Now, they've scheduled me to do that, and I, I'm certainly very willing to do it because it would have implications for family members right. and, and other people. I, I basically have the treatment already um, one way or the other, and people can have – Brugada without having the genetic markers, it seems. So it's, it's one of those diseases that, that has a genetic component, but you can also have it without the genetic component. I'm not exactly sure <laughs> all the ins and outs of that, but it, it's something that's kind of difficult to diagnose, basically. Um, and um, really, the, the sad thing is it, it seems to lead to a lot of unexplained deaths, particularly of young males. Uh, of of Asian origin. It seems like uh, it's much less common among women and much less common in, in certain ethnic groups, but Asians in particular have have more of it. But I, I did have one cousin who died in his sleep and uh, first cousin. So that kind of is a red flag. And I had another right. more distant cousin who died suddenly uh, while playing sports and not exactly sure what happened there also. So you know, and, and then there's a, there's a tendency of, of some of my cousins to faint, uh, which can be also a sign of it. So anyway, we will we will see. There's a, like a 50% chance that uh, the test will come back positive or negative. It's, it's very hard to, to tell in advance. But.
0: Right. But bottom line is, um, did your wife save your life that night?
1: In all likelihood, she did. Yeah. Uh, because... Uh, if, if it goes completely untreated, you know, and the heart doesn't start beating normally again, uh, the misfiring essentially doesn't get enough oxygen to all your organs. And so you, you slip into unconsciousness and then after that, you can, you can go all the way to death. So right. yeah, she, she reacted quickly and, and, uh, decisively. And then of course, you know, modern, modern medicine was, was very effective, uh, you know, more than 50 years ago, whatever when defibrillators were invented, um, that is essentially the treatment. And uh, before those existed, they really couldn't do much.
0: Right. Okay. So fast forward, you have been transported to the hospital and your wife went to the hospital as well too. What response did she, your wife, what response did she receive when she requested that a priest come to the ICU to anoint you?
1: Yeah, so that was very interesting. So, of course, it was it was chaotic, right? Because uh, it actually took the the ambulance people quite a bit of time to figure out what was going on and and you know to declare me safe for transport. <laughs> they even had a, a doctor come and see me in the house and say it was quite a while actually before they they, they interesting it wasn't one of those things where they come they see you and they just load you in the ambulance and take off. Right, actually working on me for a while trying to figure out what was going on. And I actually. Was conscious and and you know, but I was a little confused. I was having that's one of my memories. I have very few memories of the incident, but one of them is just trying to talk to the uh, the EMTs from the ambulance and wasn't quite sure what day it was, etc. But anyway, um, yeah. So then they, you know, with all the different COVID nineteen restrictions, they took me to the hospital. Marie was not allowed to ride in the ambulance, but she was allowed to go to the emergency room and. One of our neighbors was very kind and and uh, took my daughter in so that Marie could go. And then she so she arrived at the emergency room and asked how I was doing. At first, it seemed like I was doing okay, and uh, and there was some reassuring news. Uh, but then afterwards, I had the second attack while I was there, and so then they were very, very concerned, not sure what was going to happen uh, if I was just you know my heart was giving out or or what. And at that point, she was like, "Well, he needs a priest," and she asked for for a chaplain, and asked the hospital staff there if they could call one, and you know, made it very clear that it should be a priest. And then they told her, mm-hmm. "Oh, absolutely, sure," and then called for a chaplain. But the chaplain on duty ended up being a Protestant layperson who came very kindly. But obviously, could not confer any Catholic sacraments, <laughs> so right. it was it was unfortunate. And then she tried to call uh, our parish and uh, reached one of the priests there, who informed her that unfortunately, he'd been denied access uh, on several occasions to that that hospital, which is a secular hospital, is that you know fifteen minutes away from our house, not a Catholic hospital, and um, you know very good on the medical front, but on this whole COVID front, they've Pretty much put into place a blanket policy of no visitors. Right. And they include clergy in that blanket policy of no visitors. So, you know, chaplains who are on staff, they allow in, but apparently they had no Catholic priest as a chaplain on staff who could come and see me. So I was kind of up a creek there.
0: Right. So obviously a priest didn't come when your wife requested uh i'm going to assume the same answer is going to happen here with my next question but what response did you receive when you regained consciousness and you asked for the sacraments on your own
1: yeah so i mean my second memory in the hospital is uh, <laughs> I, I woke up uh, i was looking up and there were like five people looking down at me with masks on i couldn't speak because they had intubated me so i had it yeah. going down my throat and uh and i was completely paralyzed so i couldn't move a muscle which is a weird thing because i was completely conscious but i couldn't move i was like what's going on (laughs) uh i learned afterwards that they'd they'd given me a paralytic uh so that i wouldn't pull out all the different tubes because i had literally tubes everywhere (laughs) down my throat and in both my arms and in my groin area going up uh going up my uh my arteries, et cetera. So, and I was intubated and, well, intubated, but I also had um, a catheter in, I mean, just tubes everywhere. And they were scared that I was going to, you know, convulse, pull them out type
0: of thing. Right.
1: But I, um, I was able to sort of wiggle my toes. <laughs> and then- <laughs> Well, that's a good sign. Yeah. And then after that, I could sort of like wiggle my head. And it was funny how, you know, you sort of regain control of your body slowly. But I managed to- signal to them that I was conscious. And then they they started asking me questions and I was able to nod yes or nod no, but I couldn't really say anything. So they were asking questions that I was trying to answer yes or no. But uh, the next day they extubated me. And so at that point I was able to speak (laughs) and I was able to start asking things. And one of the first things I asked for was a priest in the sacraments. And they said, oh, well, we'll get you somebody. And then they sent me um, a layman, Catholic layman, who was a chaplain there. And, you know, he brought me a prayer card and we prayed a little bit together, et cetera. But that was the extent of it. And I was saying, well, I really want to see a priest. Um, So later on that day, I received a call from a priest and we spoke a little bit on the phone. It was funny because after they put the tube down my throat, uh, when they took it back out, I was incredibly sore, like my... My, my throat was just really tough. I was having a hard time speaking in kind of a raspy voice, etc. But anyway, I was able to speak and, and uh, talk to this priest, but he wasn't able to come out. So again, I felt, "Wow, gosh, I'm you know really alone here." And I got my phone back, and I was able to speak to my wife, but I was also able to send out some emails and, and text.
0: Yeah. And I remember I got an email from you that, that day, and I, I remember emailing you back saying, What are you doing?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's incredibly boring to be just sitting there <laughs> in bed and have nothing. Ah, it was, it was, yeah, yeah pretty, pretty nuts. But uh, yeah, so my wife wasn't able to visit. No one was able to visit. Uh, I mean, I had lots of visits, but they were all medical staff. Right, And I uh, was able to discuss God and, and all kinds of interesting topics with the nurses and different, you know, other people coming in in the room, different doctors. But I wasn't able to get the sacraments. And that was just, ah, this is terrible. So, I actually emailed Archbishop Chaput, who's the Emeritus Archbishop of Philadelphia, and amazing about email. And so, he wrote back to me like, just immediately and said he would come if he could, but he was not allowed. Uh, and he had a priest secretary, uh, who he was going to try and, and get in and, and look into the situation. But, uh, you know, uh, once again, they were kind of running into this, this wall of, uh, the blanket, no admission of, of any visitors, anybody who wasn't on staff of the hospital. Uh, the one exception that I was told and, and the, you know, thank God it never got there because I was, I was improving so quickly, but they, they did tell my wife that if I was, passing, she would be allowed to come in and, and say goodbye. So it seems like they were they were willing to make one exception anyway, <laughs> uh, right. to that, that rule. And but it was it was intensely frustrating. Um, because, you know, a lot of these staff members were very kind, you know, a lot of them were Catholic, uh, and and, you know, empathized, et cetera, but they had literally no control over this policy. Hmm.
0: All right, so the title of the essay that you wrote and this essay is available on our website. The title was Shocking Violations of Religious Liberty Rights. So why do you believe your rights were violated?
1: Yeah. I mean, as a Catholic, the most important thing in my life, you know, is eternal life. And 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 being able to To be prepared for that most important moment in my entire existence, which is the moment of death. I mean, it's it's shockingly important. Uh, If you know you can lead a wonderful life, just you know, very saintly life, and then somehow, right before you die, uh, despair and and you know, just completely reject God and and die in a a state of mortal sin and, and not go to heaven, or on the other hand. Lead a horrible life, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of bad ways, and 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 be in a, in a terrible state of sin, and yet at the last moment convert. You know, the famous deathbed conversion, and and you know, maybe you're not going to go straight to heaven. You might have a, a little purgatorial twist there um, for quite a long time. But the point is, you know, you will be saved. And right. So, receiving the sacraments, and particularly you know, uh, reconciliation, confession, but, but also, I mean, even if you're unconscious, right. The, the sacrament of anointing, uh, will, will take away your sins. Um, if, you know, if, if that is, is what you wanted, uh, before you, you went unconscious. So it's, it's incredibly important, more important really than, than healthcare and, and saving your physical life is saving your, your eternal immortal soul. And so, it it's hard to overestimate the importance of that. And it seemed to me like the the healthcare system, the secular healthcare system, was basically you know putting down a blanket policy and saying, "Look, uh, we have chaplains on staff. You know, chaplain is a chaplain. <laughs> right. uh, you can you know you're getting spiritual care. So what's the point here? You know, and and what what's the big deal?" And of course, the big deal is the sacraments. I, I, I just couldn't receive the sacraments from these individuals. And, you know, as good as they were and, and they were fine and, and, you know, we had, we prayed together and all that, but it it was really shocking to see the the lack of understanding of how important that is and, yeah. and how a person really, you know, in the depths of their soul needs this and yet to just kind of like just brush it aside It's like, well, you know, we're in a special circumstance here with COVID nineteen, and we can't allow visitors into the hospital, and that includes everybody. Right. It it was it was very very violating, you know, violating my rights, and 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 it was in a sense it was worse because everybody was so nice about it, you know. <laughs> I mean it's like you're being you're being denied something fundamental by a whole bunch of people who are like, "Oh yeah, you well, know, you know, would you like some jello, you know, and 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 very sweet and kind and and certainly taking care of me physically very well. But spiritually, I was completely without the most essential thing, you know. And sure, they they were willing to, you know, I ended up having like three different chaplain visits. <laughs> but but none of that, you know, brought me what I, what I needed. And of course, you know, I wasn't dying by the end, you know, and and I was out of the hospital after four nights. So, I mean, as soon as I was out, I was able, our local parish priest was wonderful. And he was, he anointed me almost immediately and, and I was able to go to confession and everything else. So it was, it was great, but why wasn't I able to do that in the hospital?
0: Yeah, we're going to co- go down a, a little bit of a, uh, a, a side tangent here. We're going to come back to these religious liberty questions, but as you're speaking, I'm I'm struck by the fact that uh, in addition to not allowing clergy members into hospitals and assisted care facilities, many institutions aren't allowing family members access to loved ones. And you had this, you know, with your, with your wife as well. Can you comment on this?
1: Yeah, yeah, it it's incredibly devastating to the loved one. I, and it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I got the impression that my wife was suffering more than I was from not being able to come and see me. Because, you know, in a sense, as the patient, I was I was kind of distracted by all these medical visits, right. Right? everything going on, you know. I mean, I was kind of bored out of my skull, part of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> there, you know, there, there's a lot to focus on. Right, uh, and then she was just basically very, very worried and and wanted to be there and 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 be able to help. and all that you know, was frustrating. So she was getting calls from doctors or nurses who were kind of informing her of my kid condition, what was planned for me, et cetera. And I was able to speak to her a little bit too, but it was it was massively trying. And I can just imagine that it would be, you know, so many times worse if my condition had been getting worse, I was going to be dying and, and not to be with your loved ones at that critical moment is, is horrific or even worse, you know, something that happens to to us at the NCBC is, as we listen to people call us on our, on our free consultation line, you know, doctors asking them to make a decision about their loved one who's in a coma, you know, who's non-responsive and, they want to do X, Y, and Z and not to be able to physically see the condition of the patient to, to try and, you know, be with them while they're making that decision. That's just horrific.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can think I've had a couple of consults, um, that exact same thing. And in, in one case, a spouse was being called to literally make life or death decisions about her husband and wasn't able to access him you know, couldn't get a priest to see him, couldn't, couldn't see him herself. And it was, she just ran up against this wall every time she, you know, she just tried to have contact with her husband to, to even ask him what he wanted to do. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's something I think that a lot of people have not, uh, are not aware of, and certainly not an issue that has been discussed all that much in terms of this whole COVID-19, um, you know, the whole, all the challenges that come about because of it. But let's get back to the religious liberty uh, question. So you were talking earlier about uh, the people in the hospital, great care, but just sort of not uh, any real kind of understanding of the importance of the sacraments. So do you think that hospital policies, whether, uh, you know, whether explicit or implicit policies that deny access to the sacrament, do you think that the result of One, a hostility to religion, and in particular, Catholicism. Two, an ignorance of the faith, particularly the role of the sacraments at end of life. Or three, something else.
1: So, definitely ignorance. You know, I I truly got the sense that they didn't really realize what was at stake. That, um, you know, uh, uh, a lay chaplain is not the same thing as a priest (laughs) for a Catholic uh, in terms of the sacraments. And I also had the impression, you know, and and this is kind of like the wider impression. I obviously don't know these administrators who are making these policies, et cetera, but the wider impression from the NCBC, from seeing how hospitals were reacting, how ethicists were speaking, et cetera, there, there was kind of like a very much defensive position, you know, like, wow, we're, we're in a crisis Because we're in a crisis, we have to take, you know, these these really kind of radical positions. And are we going to run out of you know personal protective equipment? Uh, Having having family members, having visitors of any kind, just complicates things. And you know, the only thing that we are called to do is to maximize the chances of saving this person's life. And the spiritual side, I think, is just kind of you know, seen as non-essential. I mean, one of the big problems that I've seen throughout this whole pandemic is this, you know, constant uh, view that that religious practice and the spiritual side of things are non-essential. I mean, ridiculous things like, oh, well, you can't have a Catholic mass because, you know, that's dangerous but right. you can have a liquor store that's open <laughs> as many right. people in a Walmart as you have in a church, yep. you know, uh, because, well, that's essential. Really? And, and even afterwards, you know, when all these different protests started on the streets, now you had, you know, clergy and, 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 and religious, et cetera, taking part in these protests, which, you know, were violating the, uh, the social distancing and everything that was said to be really essential well, no, this is really important, right? We have to protest racism. Well, I mean, there really is literally nothing more important than the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the holy sacrifice of the mass. So, uh, you know, there's like priorities that, that seem to be completely out of whack.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree. And I'm as, again, as you were speaking, I was thinking back to some of my own experiences in Catholic healthcare and just you know the the increasing numbers of providers who are not catholic who come to the US from other countries other cultures and this isn't a it's not necessarily a criticism of them but they're not they they're just not aware and so this doesn't become something that's important and same thing with administrators who come in who are not catholic or um, you know are not you know who don't uh you know faith isn't an important part of their life this the whole spiritual aspect of health i think does get lost and and i think that's probably uh, in part what you experienced during your hospital stay Hmm. how do you respond though to those who would argue that a hospital no visitation policy is a good faith effort it's even necessary to protect patients and healthcare workers from COVID nineteen,
1: right? I mean, so we studied this, uh, and at the NCBC we have a, a very good document that one of our part time ethicists put together on access to the sacraments in time of pandemic. And the the simple answer is, you know, it's a little bit complicated, but it can be done. So you know, you can you can train chaplains, you can train individuals in order to be safe. And at the same time, to to have access to these patients. And so, and and there's some wonderful examples. I mean, Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston, who's on our board, um, but also Archbishop Nauman in Kansas City, uh, in both places, they had priests who volunteered. To you know, learn all the safety precautions that need to be taken, and you know, modify the the administration of the sacraments in, in ways that would make it safe. So, not reusing the oils, you know, et cetera. And they were able to confer the sacrament on hundreds and thousands of, of patients who were dying or who were severely ill, and and to you know make this a reality in in a safe way. But such an ins- essential aid. Uh, and comfort to all these different families is possible. And and uh, we have the proof of it. You know, there, there was even like an article in the New York Times pointing out how the families were so incredibly thankful in Boston. Right. And Cardinal O'Malley told me he really, really had to fight to get these priests access into some of these hospitals that were, you know, were holding on to this blanket no visitor policy and, and they did not want to allow access because they were scared for one reason or another, or or just generally didn't think it was practical. The point is, when something is important, you can usually find a way to do it. Uh, It's it's some some form of laziness, you know, or a kind of uh, lack of imagination when people just say, nope, nope, sorry, can't do it. There's, you know, we're, we're laying down this Policy, this rule and and no exceptions, because if we start having exceptions, then we won't be able to, you know, to to find a way around that, etc. In a sense, it's just being very simplistic and and discriminatory in in a very significant way. So, yeah, it, to to me, it was I think a more than more than like an anti Catholic mindset it was more of like, you know, a secular lack of imagination, secular kind of laziness, where they just don't want to have to think outside the box, how to, to really, really serve their patients uh, with something that is so essential.
0: Right. This question may be similar to the one you just answered, but I'll, I'm going to ask it. How do you suggest that we balance access to the sacraments, which is a as you will say, and I agree with you, a religious liberty right. How do we balance that with the patients and the and the healthcare um, providers' right to a safe environment?
1: Sure. I mean, and and there was a lot of concern about that. You know, in the beginning, they weren't sure if they were going to have enough personal protective equipment, even for the healthcare providers. And so I can I can understand a certain amount of trepidation there, etc. At the same time, uh, you know, priests can can do this and, and have been able to do this. So it just seems to me that um, it's not rocket science. You know, <laughs> they, they were able to train up these priests in, in, a, in a short amount of time to do this. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there, yeah, there was a certain sense of, of lack of prioritization So I understand wanting to keep healthcare workers safe, keeping, you know, individuals safe uh, outside, you know, and also healthcare workers, families, et cetera. And that should be a high priority. But that doesn't mean that other things can't be just as high or even higher priority because in a sense, you know, healthcare should be about the patient. Um, If a person is a healthcare worker, they, you know, in the Hippocratic tradition, uh, for doctors, but also nurses and other other persons, they are at the service. You know what is best for this patient, and and how can they help this patient? And you know, and the first principle is do no harm. Well, preventing an individual from having access to the sacraments when they desperately want it and desperately need it is is doing them a great deal of spiritual harm. So it sense it's you know expanding the scope, expanding the vision. Just to understand what's going on, and it's it's not just a question of the physical well being of, of either the healthcare workers or the patients, but going beyond that, you know, to body soul, and to me, it's it's just so key that uh, we have good Catholic healthcare workers who understand this, uh, you know. And it's, it's strange, right? I mean, I would notice it. When I had nurses who came and took care of me who were Catholic and I could relate to in a, you know kind of a spiritual sense and have conversations, it was so much better, <laughs> uh, the whole experience, right. rather than some of the individuals who came in who didn't have much faith or weren't interested in that sort of thing. And then it was kind of cold and mechanical, you know, I felt like they were kind of treating the body, the machine, <laughs> but it was very hard to relate to them on a deeper level. And as a human being, you want connection and, and to be closer. And, and certainly, you know, your life is to a certain extent in the hands of these people. You want to, to have a real sense that wow, they're, they're taking care of me. You know, they, they I can trust these people. We, we have a real bond. And if you're sort of just being treated as, you know, well, a a pile of organs, you know, (laughs) don't need to be checked and and double-checked and triple-checked and, you know, checked at 3 a.m. in the morning, which I never understood, (laughs) Um, then it's it's dehumanizing. And it, it really goes against this dignity of the human person.
0: Right. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your interactions with the Catholic healthcare workers. You, you you mentioned this twice now. How did how did those conversations start and and what did you talk about?
1: Yeah. So I, I ended up talking about healthcare. Uh, talked about Saint Padre Pio. Talked about some of the uh, the healthcare miracles actually associated with Saint John Paul II. Uh, apparently, mm-hmm. ch- cured a child of leukemia in in Mexico while he was alive, and the whole story was was kept hidden at at the request of John Paul the Second until after his death. Um,
0: I never heard of that. This is the first time I'm even hearing about
1: this. was amazing. Yeah, there's a there's a book there. I think it's called John Paul the Great that relates all these different miracles that occurred while he was alive, and they managed to to keep them quiet
0: <laughs> wow. until,
1: until after his death. There was also a priest. I think he was. Uh, blind as a result of of a beating that he received, went to private mass with, with John Paul II and regained his sight. <laughs> so they kind of hushed it up, sent him out. And then, you know, everyone heard <laughs> about this miracle. but They didn't hear that it happened in John Paul's II's private mass. You know? um, so I I was talking to the, a lot of them about this and uh, even, you know, about the interaction of faith and healing, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, people praying for, for those who are sick and, and the beneficial effects of that, et cetera. Um, it was funny cuz a lot of the doctors who came to see me there was kind of a hierarchy you know there was the, the medical resident oh yes who were at the bottom
0: <laughs> and yep.
1: the big professor uh, who was kind of a you know the specialist and all that he came in kind of with a crowd of people around him
0: <laughs> and uh, his entourage
1: yeah a lot of people and they would sort of speak about him the other other Doctors, it we speak about them sort of in hushed tones. You know, <laughs> very interesting. Um, but yeah, it just kind of—I don't know. In my case, it just comes up naturally. You know, over time, when I'm just telling stories or, or relating to things, it, it kind of always ties into the faith somehow. After a while, so and and some of the healthcare providers really picked up on that. You know, and they said, "Oh yeah, I'm Catholic too." You know, and then our conversations went off. Others like completely did not pick up on that. <laughs> right. And it was clear they yeah. were not comfortable talking. So, you know, then we started talking about travel and <laughs> whatever other like, you know, neutral topics. But right. it was interesting. It was very interesting to see. Uh, in fact, I had one, Now the other thing that happened was they were having a horrible time finding my veins to draw blood. And like <sighs> they were convinced that the veins right there and they just... And they're like, oh, no, it just rolled away. And I can't find it. And they stick me again. And uh, so so they ended up having to call like this, this uh, you know, I specialist who did uh, did like ultrasound to find and guide the needle in with ultrasound into the veins. And, but anyway, while with that whole process and sometimes one nurse would call another nurse to help out, etc., in that process I ended up meeting quite a few Catholic nurses <laughs> where we discussed things and it was it was good but it was it was just strange. It was strange when I wasn't able to, to discuss my faith and actually among the doctors I really didn't find a, a Catholic doctor with whom I could could relate on on a faith level. Um, although it was interesting when they were about to insert my implanted cardiac defibrillator uh, with the anesthesiologists, I was able to talk about things and even bioethics. And one of them was, you know, it's fascinating. Oh, wow, National Catholic Bioethics Center and had all kinds of questions about neurological criteria for the determination <laughs> of death and all these things. And it was great. I was giving them the website and going back and forth, and we had a, you know, pretty good bioethics talk. And it was it was interesting that, you know, they I don't think they were Catholic, I'm pretty sure, but they were very interested in what the Catholic Church's perspective was on an, and actually they had some misconceived notions at times Oh yes, of what the Catholic church actually thinks about these different questions. So it it was good. I was, I was able to, you know, kind of clarify some things and also raise some questions that they hadn't been thinking about.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I've had a few experiences of, of my own in that area. It's it's really quite fascinating. Anyway. All right. So getting back to the question of access to the sacraments. So Again, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but how has the NCBC responded to this situation, both in its uh, in its consults, and what is it planning to do about this issue moving forward?
1: Yeah, so in a way, <laughs> I kind of feel it was it was rather providential that it happened to me because you know I saw this as an important issue. The NCBC had already issued this document and passed it on to the USCCB, to the Catholic bishops, etc about access to the sacraments, and, and we certainly talked about it. But, you know, it's it's one thing to discuss something in a theoretical way or something happened to someone else, and another thing to kind of give your own witness. And, you know, just because of, of being president of the NCBC, I'm on these different committees, uh, the Healthcare Subcommittee, of uh, the Doctrine Committee, the U.S. Catholic Bishops, the Pro-Life Committee. Uh, a lot of people were just alerted to this fact, what had happened to me simply by the, you know, the the grapevine going out asking for prayers. I had prayers coming in for me from all over the world. Oh, yeah. It was so oh, beautiful, yeah. and you know, I wasn't able to access the sacraments, but tons of masses were offered for me and rosaries and everything. It was it was truly humbling. I was I was so so touched by that, but I was able to bring it up, you know, at the highest levels of the USCCB. And, you know, with the board members, we have several U.S. cardinals on our board, uh, Mm -hmm. bishops, et cetera. And, you know, there, there is a a real will to make this a priority of the Catholic bishops. So, you know, letters going out to the U.S. different U.S. Catholic, all the U.S. Catholic bishops about this COVID-19 and and the different ethical problems that have arisen because of that. Uh, Also, you know, getting in touch with the Office of Civil Rights of Health and Human Services. We just had in February, uh, Roger Severino, who's in charge of that Office of Civil Rights, uh, speak at our, our workshop for bishops in Dallas.
0: Yes, he did. And yep, he, he did.
1: He was very, very, you know, open and in fact, requesting <laughs> that uh, that any kind of violations of religious liberty be brought to his attention. And he wanted to, to deal with this in a, in a very, Serious and, and systematic way uh, through his his high position, so he was informed, and uh, you know, so through government channels, et cetera. And I've, I've been working uh, as well to uh, to you know tell the Catholic Health Association and, and different other groups that can, can inform hospitals. But of course, I think the problem is is exponentially greater in secular hospitals than it is in Catholic hospitals. I mean. You know, thank God it's a difference between Catholic health care and secular health care, right? Most Catholic hospitals either have a priest on staff as a chaplain or they have a lot of priests that that are, you know, accredited to their hospital and allowed to come in. Uh, I don't really see a lack of access uh, to a priest being a a big problem in Catholic hospitals as it apparently is in, in many of the secular hospitals. Now, there's a difference with nursing homes, and and I was told by one bishop that they had a a real problem with the Catholic nursing home where patients were dying without the sacraments, and they were not allowing visitors, not allowing priests, in even though it was a Catholic nursing home. So you know, I'm not saying the situation is perfect, but it's certainly much better, and and it it needs to be addressed. I mean, everybody needs to be aware of this issue.
0: Right, right. Earlier on, you you talked about uh, Cardinal O'Malley in Boston and Archbishop Nauman in Kansas City Kansas do you have any information about how other catholic dioceses have addressed this issue of access to the sacraments
1: yeah only anecdotally so uh, it seems to me that it it's been very very kind of unplanned <laughs> uh, the, you know the 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 sad thing about this epidemic this pandemic is that so so little warning before it struck, you know, and 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 it was kind of a, such an unprecedented crisis, and the reaction to it was so unprecedented. I think a lot of bishops were at a loss, you know, what should I do, and and they were just kind of getting advice uh, from different individuals, etc. But I mean, I have heard of some dioceses where they just didn't provide the sacraments, you know allow the the diocese was really not allowing the priests to go in because of the the risks. Mm, and right. so that that to me was uh you know is a problem and it needs to be addressed at the highest levels. But um I think it was all over the map. You know, uh there were some places where you know the the priests were allowed access and and things, you know, the sacraments were delivered and some places where nothing happened, you know, and and <laughs> Priests were were basically hindered or, or prevented from going in, and then there's probably some 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 element in the middle of there, you know, or some some hospitals allowed and others didn't, and uh, you know, it, it seems to me like it was very piecemeal, a little bit like you know the way all the different states reacted to the, the pandemic in different ways as well.
0: Yeah. So as we look to the to the lessons learned from the COVID nineteen pandemic. Is access to the sacraments an issue that the bishops should deal with individually within their own diocese? or do you think it's something that the the U.S. bishops as a whole, the USCCB, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, is this something that they should address on the national level?
1: Yeah, I think both. Both, uh, you know, there's no substitute for your local bishop, um, and you know, a bishops' conference does not have the authority to make decisions in individual dioceses. However, however, um, they do have a lot of a, a good role I think in terms of providing guidance in terms of providing kind of unified voice of you know what the church teaches uh, there there's a lot of you know complicated difficult decisions that a, that a bishop needs to make and and to be able to provide him with resources and 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 good reasoning on these issues is very important so I don't think the USCCB should be, you know, dictating exactly what's going to happen. And there are different situations in, in, in different dioceses, but, but the principles, right? What are the Catholic principles that a, that a bishop should be drawing on in order to do his duty, right? In order to be the, the shepherd for his diocese. So I think it's, it's both and really uh, there needs to be a lot of guidance and a lot of, you know, resources provided at, at the national level. And, and then the local bishops need to really understand what is going on and prioritize what is going on, uh, the important things in their diocese so that they can make the right pastoral choices.
0: What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today?
1: Hmm. Well, Certainly be prepared. Uh, I, was, I was completely taken by surprise. Uh, As were we. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I felt extraordinarily healthy <laughs> in the prime of life, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And, and the idea that I, I came very close to meeting my maker, um, I had this sense of, wow, you know, I, I really could have been better prepared. And, and, you know, it's, it is true that for most of us, we will die as we have lived, right? We need to, to be in a, in a constant state of readiness for eternal life. And, and I really felt that I was um, not ready. (laughs) There there are a lot of things that, you know, I wish I had done and, uh, and, and better, you know, done better as well. And so, to me it was it was a massive wake up call you know that wow you know one does have to to live one's life in view of eternal life and that that can happen at any moment so you know memento mori right remember that you will die it's not it's not something that should be morbid or you know something that is kind of preventing you from enjoying your life but at the same time it's, it's putting a proper priority on things, you know, and a lot of the saints, uh, I was just reading a quotation by St. John Vianney, the, the Curie d'Ars, and he was saying, you know, wow, uh, some of the saints began very badly, but they ended really well. And we have all begun badly. <laughs> you could just say that. I have. Like it wise. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's within our power to end well and it's you know the time to begin is now we don't we don't know how much time we have left and you know we we know what the average lifespan is but that is an average we're going to go early some of us are going to go later and we have no real way of knowing so it's it's a priority we have to to think about you know what kind of state is our soul in what, what kind of you know, person am I, what, what am I doing right now? And, and, you know, I can tell you, I've been hugging my daughter more <laughs> uh, and generally generally, trying to be uh, a better person in view of, you know, eternal life. And it's good. It's good. It's um, it's really amazing. When, when my daughter was born, uh, I had this just flood of, of love and feeling, and, you know, wanted to make the world a better place for her. And, it's absolutely true, you know, that when one is really committed to something, uh, we prioritize it and, and we, we change, we become, you know, better or worse, depending on <laughs> what we're prioritizing. But if, if eternal life is real for us, if, if it's something that is, that is waiting for us and, and, and we don't know when it's going to begin in terms of the, the time of death, we just have to be ready you know, as, as ready as we can be. And so, you know, go to the sacraments, you know, frequent confession is, is a really, really good idea. <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough. Um, and, and just generally to, to have this consciousness, you know, about the importance of our activities. I mean, what we do in this world resonates uh, eternally. I mean, there's some individuals who, uh, you know, had near death experiences, came back and, one of the things that really struck me was a person who said, I didn't realize how even like small actions had such an eternal impact, you know, in terms of impacting other people and, and, and the, the kind, of, kind of world that we create, all of us, even by our ordinary actions. So it, it's important. What we do here is important. Preparing for eternal life is important.
0: Dr. Joseph Meany. Thank you for your time today. Hey, thank you. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at j-z-a-l-o-t at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics On Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today, and may God's peace be with you.